It's Monday, November 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, and from the Great White North, Mr. Jim Gillies from Motley Fool Options. Good to see you, my friend. Welcome back. Salutations. As always, it's wonderful that they let you across the border. I'm as surprised as you are. Uh, We have a high-stakes chess match going on over at Netflix. We will get to that in a moment, but let's start with Berkshire Hathaway. Because after the market closed on Friday, Berkshire Hathaway reported third quarter earnings. Profits up 72%, 3900000000 billion in profits, Joe Mager. That's... That's a, it sounds like a nice quarter. Yeah, it was a good quarter. I mean, Berkshire's always lumpy because it's an insurance company and they have all sorts of derivatives on the books that make things really noisy. But when you kind of cut through that, uh, the operating companies had very good quarters. Burlington Northern, the railway had a good quarter. Mid-American Energy also did well. All around, the operating companies did pretty well. Uh, the insurance business is doing well. Geico had a very strong quarter. And overall, they seem to be trending well for the year, but Hurricane Sandy will probably throw a little bit of a wrench in that. No mention of the hurricane in the quarterly filing, but given Berkshire's you know, track record of strong underwriters and diversification and the 40, what, seven, eight billion in cash, I'm not overly concerned about they're navigating. I was just going to say, there were some people in the media pointing to the, the fact that there was no mention of Hurricane Sandy in the results. To, they, well, the absence kind of speaks for itself. They took that as like, you know what, they're they're totally fine. Yeah, they, I don't know. They if are totally an insurance f- company. That's the point. I mean, they insure things like this. Yeah. No, I know, but I mean, is it, it was being seen by some as they have virtually no exposure whatsoever to Hurricane Sandy. Is is that it, or it's like, yes, they have some exposure, but they're totally fine. I think it's better to read into it that there's not a whole lot of exposure. Um, you mentioned the nearly forty-eight billion dollars they have in cash. Um, Jim, which before we started taping, you said, oh, that's half of what Apple has. <laughs> um, it, it was about a year or so ago, I think, that uh, Buffett was talking about uh, going elephant hunting. He, wanted, you know, he was looking to make some big acquisitions. This is a near record amount for Berkshire Hathaway. What should he do with it, Jim? Well, he says uh, he also wants to keep about $20 billion for I guess, lying around money, I suppose. So. <laughs> Um, but, I just uh, picture him like Scrooge McDuck style diving, yeah, diving into, into it. silos of golden coin. Well, <laughs> no, no gold, I guess, for him. Stock certificates. No, I mean, I, I, I look at this. I was thinking about what, what could he buy if he wanted to go for elephant hunts? And uh, you know, I mean, Western Union got a heck of a lot cheaper last week. Uh, that might be an interesting play if you don't think the business is in permanent decline, which I think there's a good Probably. argument for. Um, you know, uh, he, he's still, I think the largest shareholder of Moody's that might be an interesting play. One, one name that I thought of now, it's not, I'm not too sure it's an elephant, but it might be a pygmy rhino, um, <laughs> would be, uh, it's a company called Autolive. ALV is the ticker. And this would hurt me personally. Cause I, I, I own the stock myself and I'd kind of like to own it for the long term, So I not want to see Warren take it away from me, but they're, uh, they are basically the dominant uh, manufacturer in automotive safety, auto live. So think seat belts and airbags. Yep. Uh, they're also getting into the active safety components. So And they're in everyone, every manufacturer. And uh, if you take the thesis that uh, North America, the auto industry, is not back yet. I mean, we're still not making vehicles at our replacement rate, which I know has been uh, Joe's uh, thesis for GM a number of times. Long uh, time now. Well, no, <laughs> but it, but it's it's how, it's one that I happen to agree with, and then the rest of the world is is also getting caught up to uh, increasing safety standards per vehicle. Company makes a lot of cash, they have good returns on capital, smart management, 
it seems like almost a perfect uh, Berkshire acquisition. They could just buy and leave it in place. Probably cost me about seven, seven and a half billion dollars to take it out. We have dozens of listeners, and I'm pretty sure Warren Buffett is not one of them. Uh, so I think I think your secret is is safe with good. Uh, I'd like to kind of own it for the dividend. <laughs> uh, Joe, what do you think? I mean, if if you go by you know what Jim is saying, and and we're only talking about 28 billion in spending yeah. cash, not the the full 48. Uh, what do you think makes for a potential acquisition? I wouldn't be shocked. This isn't an acquisition, but I wouldn't be shocked if he went ahead and bought some McDonald's. Uh, the stock's near a 52-week low, and Buffett loves classic American franchises with a key part there being franchises. Uh, profit margins at McDonald's are insanely high because of the franchise model, and it's a beautiful thing. You know, the franchisee basically pays a percentage of gross sales back to McDonald's as a royalty for using the brand. and you know, it's a pretty beautiful business and wouldn't be shocked if he picks them up. Last Wednesday, shares of Netflix jumped more than 20% on the news that activist investor Carl Icahn had taken a 10% stake in the company. This morning, however, Netflix announced it is adopting a shareholder rights plan to defend the company against takeovers from people like Carl Icahn. <laughs> um, what do we think of this? And, and just to be clear in terms of the numbers, uh, Icahn's stake is just under 10%. I think it's 9.8, maybe 9.9. Um, so the plan that Netflix announced kicks in when an individual shareholder who doesn't have board approval hits that 10% threshold little bit of back and forth going on here, Jim. There is. I, I, what I find, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Icon Stake is almost all consisting of an option position called a synthetic long. And the structure of the whole position is rather interesting. Is he, If the thing moves against him, he doesn't have to pay for it until 2014. But if they get acquired today, he gets the cash today. So it's a, he's got it heads, heads he wins, tails he also wins. But um, I'm not shocked that uh, they would throw a poison pill on here. I mean... You know, obviously the the company's been in play. I mean, it's not the first person to suggest it's been in play, and uh, I, it's a lot of brand power there. A lot of people still like Netflix as an experience. Uh, Eight dollars a month streaming, I like it. <laughs> you know, it's also good for my kids. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not shocked to see it. I'm not shocked that they would be running away screaming from Carl Icahn showing up. I mean, he did. Uh, he famously had the uh, the opposite side of the coin with Blockbuster for right. a long time there, which uh, he has subsequently called his worst investment ever. So, well, and he in in doing so, he said Netflix had a better model. Yes, and so now, what is he going to do with it? I mean, I think there's some fear maybe that uh, uh, he would try to influence the company, perhaps to give up on their international expansion and just turn into a cash a cash engine in North America. Maybe. Which they're not going to do. Which they're not going to do. But you know, uh, if if he wants to, I don't know, cause some problems. I mean, really, he hasn't done anything aside from buy the shares yet, or or set up the option position. So I mean, really, we're kind of you know stabbing in the dark. They obviously want to head off any potential damage he does. Well, and to be clear, there are activist investors who look to buy shares and maybe even get a seat on the board so they can influence some change mm-hmm. to, because they think, hey, I can help turn this company around. Um, but, Joe, I should point out that in his SEC filing, uh, Icon uh, said uh, that he believes Netflix may hold stri- significant strategic value for a variety of significantly larger companies. So this mm-hmm. is clearly... That's such a novel idea that people have been talking <laughs> about it for three years. And yet, I mean, here's the guy who stepped up and is basically saying, hey, look, I'm here not to turn this company around. I'm here because I think we can sell this company to 
a Microsoft, an Apple, a Google, that's, an Amazon. That's not why he's there. That's why he says he's there. The reason he's there <laughs> is because he can make a quick buck on it, and he can come in, as Jim was saying, and basically make this case. And anytime that people hear that he's invested in a stock, the stock pops, and that's exactly what happened here. And I think there's no chance he's going to be around for the long term as a shareholder. Obviously, that's not really his track record. And I mean, come on. You know, selling to Microsoft, Amazon, Google. I'm not saying it's not possible, but these are ideas that everyone has batted around at some point, including, I'm sure, at Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, and Netflix. I don't think Netflix is all that interested in selling. So, yeah. Does this kind of thing? Well, and and you can we can remove sort of this particular case uh, in terms of Netflix and Icon. But when you when you guys as investors see this sort of drama unfolding. Company X is going along, doing their business. Outside activist investor comes in. What goes through your mind? Does that is that the sort of thing that maybe gets you more interested in a stock or less interested in a stock, depending on who the outsider is, or does it ultimately come down to the underlying company? It depends, and it depends on their ability to to flex on management and whether they have any unique ideas. I think a better icon. You know, I can. I can never remember. I can. I can never remember how to say his name. Sorry. Um, I just assume it's like data and data, or Caribbean and Caribbean. It, either yeah. one works. Um, I thought when the guy's he, a billionaire, he can't possibly care how people pronounce sure. his name. So when when he got into Chesapeake Energy, uh, that was interesting because it was a situation where the the CEO was on tenuous ground. Although we've since learned he cannot be killed with conventional weapons. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the balance sheet's a mess, and there's a lot of latent value with all these assets. They're kind of hidden, you could argue, and there was real value in a breakup. I think in that situation, I was a lot more interested when he stepped in. But ultimately, you know, the stock kind of popped forward because of some changes that he helped nudge in, and he ultimately left. And in this case, I think he's going to—I'm not really sure what he's <laughs> banking on other than hoping that his name just— kind of helps drive the stock forward because I don't think Reed Hastings is going to pull back on international and I don't think any of the ideas he's floated in terms of selling the company are going to make a difference. Jim? Yeah, I think for, for me, I, I, I've been known to wade into a couple of activist situations. I generally like the activist who comes in and says, here's my here's my plan for operational turnaround. Here's I want to get on the board. I want to influence change. I want to um, direct where this business is going. And Icon has basically said, yeah, I think it's worth more if we sell it. Okay, great. Um, as Joe says, that's not exactly a new and novel idea to Carl Icahn. What's the most recent example you've come across uh, that does fit that description, where you've seen a company and someone come in to try and turn it There's around? There's one going on right now, uh, Cracker Barrel Old Country Store. Uh, so on the oh, side of your, you know where this is going, Jim. I forgot about the Biglari one here. My my uh, my boy Sardar Biglari. No, he's not my boy. Um, but uh, uh, Sardar Biglari of Biglari Capital, aka Mr. Big, Mr. Big, aka uh, the former Steak and Shake. Uh, he's uh, stirring up all kinds of um, charges and trouble at Cracker Barrel, basically uh, insinuating that. Uh, the, the he he basically got the chairman ousted or chairman chose to not stand for re-election 
you know, the new guy they brought in, he started saying, well, you know, they're misleading statements in the, in the proxy statement. He's come out and talked about uh, how the company is misleading you in terms of uh, their uh, reporting of metrics and why, you know, for the, the case that management wants to make to, that they should stay in control. And so, you know, there, there's been a pretty good track record uh, that he's had there. But also um, one from about a year and a bit ago, Red Robin Gourmet Burgers, I mm-hmm. tend to like crummy little restaurant chains um but red robin gourmet burgers uh they went through one of these where there was a couple outside activists who, and the company completely rolled over and so the stock has more than doubled since then and it was a really great it, it was a really great example of of you know you get the former strategy out and you get the former management out and good things can happen say what you will about cracker barrel they make a nice gift basket the meats and cheeses well, they're the closest thing to a pure play on the rock candy thesis <laughs> Uh, and finally, guys, it's a story that has dominated headlines recently, particularly given the devastating effect that it has had on states in the northeast part of the United States, uh, both in terms of lost revenue for the economy and the damaged psyche of millions of people. I'm referring, of course, to the NHL lockout. <laughs> um, <laughs> since we, you know, we have Jim down from Canada, I figured, oh, like, you know, let's, goes. <laughs> let's look at the business of hockey because, Jim, we were talking before we were taping. Um, it, uh, I'm not a big hockey fan, and yet even I recognize it is significant that the lockout has extended to the point where the NHL has canceled the Winter Classic. And for those who don't know, the Winter Classic is sort of the big rollout event of the NHL where they have an outdoor game on New, New Year's, Year's Day. Day. Yep. Um, they've held it at places like Fenway Park in Boston and in, and in Pittsburgh. I think it was going to be held in Detroit this it year. It was going to be held in the University of Michigan Stadium, I think. 115,000 yeah. people. Um, and last year when the NBA had their lockout, they were very mindful, even though the season started late, they were very mindful of the fact that sort of the unofficial rollout for the NBA is Christmas Day. And the powers that be got together on both sides of the table and said, look, if we're going to get this thing done, let's make sure we get it done so that we do have that big rollout on Christmas Day. Uh, it, it seems like a really bad sign that the NHL, the business of the NHL is such that they can't even get agreement to get the get this done by the... It's not good, Chris. I mean, it's you really look at this and say it, it's about... Uh, I think they were looking at nine or ten million dollars. I mean, probably more than that. I probably shouldn't even quote the the dollar figure. But this was going to be almost like a two week thing. It was going. They were planning on uh, AHL games and junior hockey games and festivals going on for at, the Winter uh, Classic. Winter Classic going yeah. on at Comerica Park. I mean, you talk about uh, you know a few thousand temporary jobs, but still jobs all associated with it. And yeah, they can't they can't get things together. And the players, uh, the heart of this debate is how much uh, share of of revenues the players should get, whether it be the current 57% or the NBA settled eventually at 50-50. And I think they're struggling to get down to that 50-50 part. But this is just going to – this is probably the biggest revenue generator outside of uh, perhaps the playoffs, and they just gassed it. So, I mean, if I'm the players, I'm not really – Well, let's be clear. The, the, their current revenue share is zero because right now there's no sure, season. Sure, So there's no money. And uh, it's this is a – it's a bit of a different vibe than the last time they did this in 2004, where at least north of the border, because there's a lot of people saying pox on both their houses right now, and uh, and I think justifiably. Joe, yeah, I think the you know Joe Mager NHL, <laughs> NHL. expert. How I, do you feel about the Atlanta Thrashers, Joe? <laughs> oh well, you know I think uh, we're good with Gretzky this year. <laughs> uh, it seems like the players here are overplaying their hand. You know I can understand why they were. You know, initially going for more cash or, or looking to maintain, but the reality is the economics of the NHL just don't justify the kind of salaries these guys are making. And 
at the end of the day, business is business, and they're going to have to acquiesce to something. And, you know, these guys, if the stories of how most pro athletes work out, you know, in terms of you make a ton of cash early in your career, and then basically you don't make anything else for the rest of your life. Um, I'm guessing NHL players kind of follow a similar pattern of going out and blowing a lot of cash. And, you know, it hurts when you're not at work, and that's going to catch up quickly. And the longer they hold out, I think the worse their hand gets. And it compounds by the fact that they're out of work and not making that money, and it's just going to make them that much weaker at the, the bargaining table. Yeah, a couple a couple of things that spring to mind. Uh, the first is a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk, uh, at least north of the border, about how the business of the NHL has done so well since the last lockout. I think they went from about 1.8 billion dollars in league-wide revenues to about 3.3 in the most recent season. Most of that has been due to the fact that the Canadian teams, Canadians are you know are idiots when it comes to hockey and will watch anything. The Canadian teams have done really really well. And the Canadian dollar has gone from about 70 cents U.S. to over par in that period of time. So all that Canadian revenue is coming in much stronger when you convert it to U.S. dollars. Well, if the Canadian dollar reverts back to its long-term average in the 80 to 85 cent range. Well, what are the odds of that, though? I'd say pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and I don't just say that as someone who's paid in U.S. dollars and lives in Canadian dollars. But, you know, if that happens, you're going to see that revenue drop off. And you're going to, I mean, it's going to hurt the entire league including all these players who are currently not playing. The other thing is that there's now talk, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see this, that the league itself goes for the second complete season shutdown, shut down the whole league, and they'll just they'll, they'll end up opening training camps next year and see if they can do a, a cross-the-picket line. Or the, the players would need to strike first rather than a lockout, but then see if they can cross the picket line. As Joe says, players like to play. Probably get half the, probably get half the league walk across picket line day one. So because we want to help, and we don't think there's going to be much, if any, NHL season. There are some good hockey movies out there. <laughs> you've got Slapshot. You've got Miracle. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have Do you have a favorite hockey movie? You've already mentioned my favorite hockey movie. That would be Slapshot. Slapshot. Joe, what about you? I enjoyed Miracle, but I think The Mighty Ducks is probably say. the one that appealed to me most. <laughs> I was going to say, you were of age to, to really enjoy The Mighty Ducks. I was. Mighty Ducks 2, uh, Reach for the Money Grab, not, <laughs> not quite as good. The, so, the whole premise of the movie was ridiculous. Uh, uh, pretty good, somewhat underrated hockey movie, Mystery Alaska. Uh, Alaska. Mm, yes. um, outdoor hockey. Russell, that was good. Russell Crowe. The New York Rangers come to play. Exactly. All right, Jim Gillies, Joe Maker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. All right, I'm reading the plot for Mighty Ducks 3 right now. <laughs> the film opens with team captain Charlie Conway and his teammates being awarded their junior varsity hockey scholarships to a local high school where they struggle to play early on. Weren't they on the Olympic junior team and they were struggling? The whole plot, the sequence of the trilogy never made sense. So they barely the could win. There's a, a vein going into his temple. You can so, look at Joe here. No, hear me out. So initially, they can barely win their own league, right? And then they somehow are like world junior Olympic champions. But now we're back to, man, I'm having a hard time cutting it on the JV hockey team. What's going on here? Congratulations on being the first person in the world to refer to the first three Mighty Ducks movies as the trilogy. (laughs) 